Today's episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse. Or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Friends, welcome to the third episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. And we are here in sunny Los Angeles at the Ringer studio. We are not on tour. We've been home for a couple of days. What you been up to, CT, while you've been home? Uh, mainly getting my car fixed. It just so happened that letting it sit for a month and not starting it at all leads to various problems that necessitates money to fix. Yeah, I guess the kind of like errands they stack up while you're gone and if you're only home for a couple days it's just all taking care of that bullshit it's all logistics which is actually uh which is actually kind of a lot of what we talk about today with our great guest our guest of course is laura marling if you've read the description and uh we had this conversation in london on a beautiful spring day back in may and uh, yeah we did talk logistics how'd you find the conversation i thought it was great i thought the whole thing was great i'd met laura like a month before we did this at mm-hmm. a friend's house at a dinner in Los Angeles and sort of talked to her about it. And she was into it. And what I did not expect is when we went over, she is an incredible chef mm-hmm. and unexpectedly and unnecessarily made us a an incredible lunch at her beautiful home. It was a beautiful London day. I think the kind of day that probably makes you miss living there. Yeah, I was getting pretty emo when we were uh, making our way over to Laura's on house. The bus, yeah. I was pretty insufferable because um, I, I used to live in London and you're, I don't You're anymore. pointing out a lot of landmarks to me as we were making I our was way. being insufferable, <laughs> but thank you for being my shoulder to cry on on a beautiful London spring day. Um, one thing in this conversation, actually, that I was really taken by is that Laura got a driver's license just to tour America and just to tour alone. And we talked about those kinds of experiences. Um, There's a turn of phrase, and and I'm not saying that when Laura does it, it's this, but there's a turn of phrase that I have used in the past that's called toilet touring. Where did you hear this term first? I would have read it somewhere. um, And it's sort of basically just trying to minimize cost as much as possible. So you're driving yourself, you're sleeping like three to four people in a room. You're doing kind of whatever it takes because you want to play music. You want to share it with the world, but maybe you don't have the means to do it particularly comfortably. And uh, one of the great revelations of this conversation with Laura is that you do not like the term toilet touring. Well, I, And I'm curious why. Now, please tell me. Well, I think I probably didn't read the thing, whatever it is that you read, the, the well, source it's a of turn, this. It is a turn of phrase that yes. that is used by some in the industry. So it didn't cross my radar until I heard you use it a few times, uh, actually over the course of this podcast. Uh, But when it finally came up, when the red light was on and the the mics were rolling with with Laura, Uh I don't know, there's something about the term because I remember 
the Vampire Weekend days where this term might apply. Mm-hmm. And I remember it honestly quite fondly. Yeah. And I feel like that there's a sense that if you are at a certain level and touring and, and you know, doing your best, doing your gosh yeah. darn best out there, that the phrase toilet touring makes it feel negative, makes it feel that level in itself is not enough or is not meaningful or something. Right. So I think maybe there's maybe like something like threadbare or, you know. It's trying not to keep, alliterative. Right. Well, it's, it's a T, it's but not, yes. No. Understand the, the hard T sound. Um, I don't know. There, there's something <laughs> about the the idea of toilet touring that puts a negative pall over it, which I don't like. Maybe I guess I just have different connotations when it comes to toilets than you. <laughs> um, but, well, how would those be different? I don't know. It's a pretty universal. I, I was just uh, thinking it would be fun because, you know, we, yeah, we talk a little bit about some of like Laura's trials and tribulations of driving herself to Canada, having a tough border crossing that I honestly thought we could create a new segment called Tales from the Toilet. But since you don't feel that good about it, we won't have that be a regular segment on this podcast. But I'm just curious what have been like some of your memories of what we'll call threadbare touring from now on? Well, I mean, I think that there's there's any number of them. Some of them, actually, I would say a lot of them are almost, like I was saying, are are very logistic-based Yeah. Uh, in terms of getting yourself and your group or whoever you're traveling with from point A to point B. And it's less about the performance part because I think that kind of takes care of itself or there's, that sort of a, feels like a some almost separate set of issues. Mm-hmm. I remember we actually had a very similar experience of not being allowed into Canada on a middle-of-the-night border crossing trying to get from, I believe, Detroit or the Detroit area to the Toronto area. Mm-hmm. And there was something with our paperwork that was that a, a very upstanding and literal Canadian border patrol? Yeah. I guess yeah. A, a Mountie? I don't know. I don't know exactly no, don't. the term. Yeah, yeah. But they denied us entry, which then forced a lot of frantic middle-of-the-night phone calls and yeah. trying to figure out how we could get from point A to point B. Uh, similar things of where there was, unbeknownst to us, there was a a mini oil rush, or maybe more accurately, a shale rush mm-hmm. in Wyoming in 2007. And when we tried, we had picked a town randomly on the map to stop for for the night. And when we arrived, we were told that there was no hotel rooms available for a 50-mile radius. So then through the night, we drove and on to our next destination only to fall asleep at 10 a.m. or whatever, stuff like that. These are definitely threadbare memories. Also, and when you were talking earlier, it did remind me of not hundreds, but yeah. I'd say scores of Motel 8-ish mm-hmm. nights of two bros to a bed, two bros to a twin Absolutely. bed. I guess I have one threadbare story that I wanted to share with you, and Please. you were not there with me. But it was in the fall. Oh, so then it was probably a toilet experience. Yeah, yeah, I would, I, yeah. It was my toilet tour. It was the only tour I feel comfortable in the history of touring calling a toilet tour. But um, it was when I was opening for Saint Lucia in the fall of 2016. They were on a bus, and I was driving in a van. And sometimes I would have to leave after the show to make sure I got to the city the next time because sometimes it'd be like eight hours away. So we played a show in Denver. I was a little bit tired. I had to get some gas. So whatever, it was like 10 minutes outside Denver. I get some gas. I pull out the nozzle to start, you know, pumping it in. And something happened. I was a little bit tired. And I went to pump the gas and gas sprayed everywhere all over me. So kind of like a Zoolander it was, uh, it was actually situation. I, I, it did not occur to me at that time that it was a Zoolander situation, but I did get gas all over myself. Good thing you don't smoke. I don't. <laughs> 
it's a disgusting habit. But um, I was just so angry. I was wearing a blazer that I liked a lot, and it was covered in gasoline, and I was just so pissed off. Anyways, I get back in the car. I'm driving. I drive for about five minutes, and all of a sudden, police sirens go off <laughs> behind me. Have I told you the story? No. Okay. So I get pulled over, and I'm like freaking out because I smell like gasoline. What would that mean to them? I mean, that, that's not a sign of Maybe I was huffing gasoline, and I was just okay, insanely— okay, okay. You don't know what's going through someone sure. else's mind when they sure. pull you over. So the guy pulls me over. I get out. He starts asking me a bunch of questions. What are you doing? And I'm freaking the fuck out. And I I'm, I'm just keep wondering when he's going to ask me, why on earth do you smell like gasoline? Sir, why are you wearing a blazer that is completely covered in gasoline? He keeps asking me questions. And then eventually he's like, hey, you crossed the lane line before signaling. You signaled like a second after you crossed the lane line. So I pulled you over, but I'm going to let you go with a warning. I'm like freaking out, but I get back in the car I drive, and as part of my threadbare touring, we would stay in motels, and I stayed in one in a town called Lyman, Colorado. I got there. I smell disgusting. It's an extremely creepy motel. I get into the shower, or I go into the bathroom. I turn the water on, and it's just all rust and cold, cold water, and it smells so disgusting. And... Normally, I would not have taken a shower under such situation. The water was dirty and cold. But the aforementioned gas. But I'm covered in gasoline. And so I get in, I whimper, and I get as much gasoline off my body, and I go to bed. Man, that's threadbare as hell. (laughs) That also reminds me of, and it seems like a lot of these stories, so maybe just if you're in a van or a car, just maybe take extra care in that mountain range time zone, mm-hmm. big sky and Pacific Northwest. It seems like yeah. when the drives are longer, that's where that's where this stuff seems to happen. But remember we got pulled over in Idaho once? Yes, I do. And you being, I think historically, probably the most law-abiding of citizens. I in follow our, the rules. Our, I, I do. Our touring crew. You were the only one that got special attention from the, the cops. Yeah, because you had some sort of special shampoo <laughs> that had like leaked in your backpack. Right. Yeah. That I think it was probably dandruff shampoo. The, 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 the drug sniffing <laughs> dog had taken an interest uh, in. Yeah. I believe I have a picture of that actually, of you talking yeah. to the cop explaining yourself. Again, oh, I do remember this. Yeah. yeah, I guess something that we, even though we're talking about touring with musicians all the time, we don't necessarily talk enough about how it is a business. And you end up making certain decisions, whether you're giving up a certain level of comfort in order to be able to play more shows or driving a certain amount of time and staying in a motel, that like a lot of what touring is, is what sort of attitude and like views you have of it. And that's sort of one thing I found pretty compelling about talking to Laura about it is that she went out, learned how to drive just to drive around America and like probably be able to play more shows, get to see more people. And uh, I found that super admirable. Exactly. And I think Laura speaks incredibly well and incredibly insightfully about some of the experiences that she has had doing this sort of thing alone and all all the ways that could go well or poorly, including Rogue Soundmen, et cetera. I won't, no spoilers. No spoilers. Um, but yeah, we had a, a great talk with her. She is, I would say, in intimidatingly intelligent. Mm -hmm. She also, I know this is our second British guest in a row, but listening back this morning, what an incredible speaking voice. It's like a spa day. 
We'll be back to American accents next time. But for now, here is our conversation with Laura Marlin. Okay, well, we're here in Stoke Newington, and we are delighted to be speaking this afternoon with Laura Marling, who made us an incredible lunch, a tortilla and some sort of bean salad. It was incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. We thought we would start in the present moment slash looking forward two months, and you haven't been touring for a minute, but you have one gig this summer, which is a big one, in Hyde Park with, it's all one day, right? Is it Bob Dylan, Neil Young, and... Laura Marling, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And Sam Fender and Cat Power. And we were just curious, as sort of having not been on the road for a minute and not played shows, what about this was attractive enough to sort of be a one-off or or to get you out there again? Ah, well. It might be a self-explanatory answer, but some young cats. We'll open sort of easy with this. Yeah, yeah, some (laughs) young upstarts in music opening up for them. Yeah. I mean, it's Bob Dylan and Neil Young, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're starting easy. We'll We'll start easy, yeah. So I've done a bit of touring with Neil Young. Before. I saw that there, there's multiple runs, which probably comes from him, right? I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, I assume he doesn't mind having me on tour because <laughs> I keep getting asked back. And then this one is a big show. I don't know how they're going to do it even. I don't know who's going on first or last. Or... I guess I'm I'm curious, is this the longest you've gone for not playing live also? Just because I feel like you've worked in a very impressive, consistent manner where you know, people that we've met when we started out like you, no one has uh, seven records out, right? Yes. Seven You're records, the hardest seven working, records in stores now. Hardest working artist I know. So is it does it feel weird to have like not played a show for a couple of years? Because that's something you haven't experienced since you were what, like 18 years old? It's, yeah, since I was 16. 16. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've always either been making an album or on an album cycle. And it's been very nice not okay. to playing shows. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm I'm really missing it now. I'm definitely ready to get back into the headspace of it. Whenever, I'm sure, I don't know, because you guys, when you tour, you really go. Mm-hmm. Um, my tours are always a bit bits and pieces anyway, because I can't do more than three weeks at a time. But For like vocal? Just for mental. Mental. I just like to touch base every three weeks. How'd you learn that about yourself? I've always been somewhat of a homebody I guess I mean even though I do a lot of touring and I like to be around my family and my friends when I tour you know it can just just be me sometimes that can be a little bit Mm -hmm. too much of me yeah yeah (laughs) and when you say when you like to touch base is that with a sense of home is that a specific place or when you say three weeks and you touch base what does that mean touch base I mean with there was a time when I was living in LA actually I had a friendship group there but the time that I was living in LA my sense of identity was so warped by not being around people who'd known me for my entire life and in some ways that's a great thing and in some ways it reinforced the importance of of the original yeah of the original and having an identity and having a a place in your social world that's functional especially in family you know Uh, so that's always been a priority for me and luckily there seems to be manageable. Well, I guess I, I want to start maybe with what, what your early touring experiences were like. What were your first tours? Were you touring from when you were 16 years old? Because like, that's younger than almost anyone. I mean, I, I, for I us, could barely we were, handle it at 23. Yeah, I can't imagine as a 16 year old what that would have been like. Well, yeah. I mean, it was very tame touring. I was touring with Noah and the Whale, 
mm-hmm. who I was singing backing vocals with. So I signed my record deal when I was 16 on the day that I finished my exams. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. And then I went to see a band. I can't remember. I went to see a band in Hyde Park, actually. And I fainted and got a tattoo all in one day. It was a big day. Holy shit. Yeah, it's a lot. Was the fainting related to the record deal? No, the fainting was really... No, it's too embarrassing why I fainted. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's too embarrassing. <laughs> um, it was just too much overexcitement. And then I moved up to London and I started touring with them and we toured in a Ford K. I'm, I'm pretty sure that doesn't even exist a in Ford America. A Ford K? How many does it seat? It seats four. It's a very English, tiny little car. Oh, so it's not it's a van. It's not a van. It's like, okay, no, it's, it's a car. car, yeah. So we would travel around with, I'd have a snare drum on my lap and that kind of thing, that level of touring. And that was very exciting. And we did that for, you know, it wasn't, I think about how many dusty floors we stepped, slept on and how many days we went without showers or vegetables or whatever. It was just, you know, you're young and you don't care. But so, and you were living in London at that time? Yeah, I was living on the outskirts of London. And where were you playing? What was the tour? What did it look like? It was like grotty. We'd call it in England the toilet tour. Yeah, toilet tour. Yeah, I love that term. <laughs> yeah. I love toilet touring. Yeah. <laughs> it was like student unions and tiny little sweaty venues yeah. where you get paid in beer tokens or whatever, which I couldn't use. Um, and yeah, that was it. When you think back to that tour is there like one particular memorable show or was there like a first time getting up on stage where you were outside London where it felt like music was taking you whether it was to like Wolverhampton or something was there some excitement of getting to travel and perform every night there was definitely I think the first time I went to Europe and played shows that was incredible and the first tour in America my the first time I played shows in America the first show ever was at Sidewalk Cafe and that was like a legendary place to our, us, like. English. And how old are you at this point? 17. Okay. Yeah. So you're then, a grizzled vet of 17. I was a grizzled vet, yeah. And we played at a bowling alley in Park Slope. It was Union me, Hall. Union Hall. We played there. What year? Little. Was it's, it was little. Very ba- a basement. Yeah, it was in the basement. Yeah. 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 What, what, we played there 2007. That's the only yeah. show that you did not perform. Oh. I played there twice. You played there once. Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't play. Chris Chris Bayo took, took um This is some real deep trivia. Was uh, <laughs> was studying for the exam you take if you want to be go to law school. Okay. The, the LSATs, right? I was taking the LSAT the next <laughs> the day. The next day. So I he didn't want to play the sh- He didn't want to play the show because that would, you know, mess with his sleep and his study cycle. So a friend <laughs> of ours, Matt Buddy Herms Herman, filled in for that one show. Oh. And he he did very well. But that was that oh, was oh he did he did he did very <laughs> okay. no, but, he could have stolen your spot. Well, I was keeping my options open at that time. I didn't know if I was going to be. A musician he did great. Or not. At, he did great at I, L- I did, LSATs, by the way. But he got a great mark. But so that was with no one the whale still. No, that was just with solo. me. So you that went from, from like within. Okay, so you finished school sixteen. Have a big day. Big day. I was already playing solo shows. Oh, you were? Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't. I had my own thing going, yeah. but No and the Whale were more established and it was fun to play in a band. And then Charlie Fink, the lead singer, ended up producing my first record. So, but so you rolled kind of right into solo touring off of that? Yeah. Then. Okay. And already we're getting on a plane and flying across the Atlantic at 17 to play shows. Yeah. And that year, I guess, because I was so young, that Union Hall show, I played the show and then the guy running the venue came and 
was like, you have to come with me. And he locked me in the like utility closet because they were being raided for underage people. Oh, and even I wasn't the performers? allowed to play there. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. There's some show like I think it, it happens sometimes where like British bands like get signed really young. They like hide you in a hole, and then when it's yeah. time to play, they put you on stage, and then they throw you back in the hole afterwards. Yeah, it was kind of exciting, kind of rock and roll in its own <laughs> weird way. But was was there? Because I I feel like we've had a very specific experience, which is always based and rooted in this classically held idea of a band. For you to sort of have that balance and see both sides pretty early on, was there a difference between like as you? Approach performing. Well, um, I loved knowing the well because I had no responsibility and I was there to support somebody or group of people. I loved that experience. I'm glad I had that balance. And then my stuff was fine. Like, I think Charlie was quite a nervous performer and I'm, I wasn't ever. So it wasn't ever a huge deal. It was never a big drama performing for me. No stage fright ever? No stage fright ever. That's yeah, incredible. That's Congrats. Nice. Yeah. Was that a product of youth to some extent? Was that a product yeah. of just of how you felt about the you know the songs you were writing? I think it was like kids on rollerblades. You know, like you have no concept of pain, right? So, well, that's what I was thinking when you were describing the so-called toilet tour, which is not a term that I love as much as as Bayo. <laughs> but um, I feel like if our band were starting now, I wouldn't have nearly the sense of confidence or like world-beating attitude as I did when we were 22. Like, of course, yeah. Like, why wouldn't this happen? Yes. And I'd be like, oh, I'd think of all the reasons why it couldn't or shouldn't. Yes. Existentialism creeps up on you as you get older. I Which think. is quite limiting, I've found. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had to recapture that. So one one thing, I, I when I was researching this, you said that you've been playing with the same rhythm section now for ten close years. to 10 years? Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, particularly as someone who's who's very much a solo artist, is how those relationships developed? Is there was it just something purely musical? Was it the hang? You know, like is it like a personality thing, or how how did these people become your sort of constant companions? They were good musicians first and foremost, and I think when I was eighteen, I was making records with Ethan Johns by then, and Ethan Johns was a good. I guess he helped me choose the right people by his standard of how he played on my records, and then. They just happen to be great people. And there's been a, a few change of lineups elsewhere in the band, depending on what the tour, the year of touring or year and a half of touring calls for. So I used mm-hmm. to have, she's a family friend, actually, a cellist called Ruth de Turberville. And that was like my favorite bit of touring because not only was she the first girl that had ever come on tour with me, you know, there was never any female musicians. Right. And we had so much fun and that that was incredible. But then when we made short movie, there was no cello on it and... When it got more rocky. It got a bit more rocky. So you you enjoyed having another woman on tour? Yeah, that was a big turning point for me. It, that really like changed touring for me. Can you describe what like what about that specifically? Or is it just I didn't have any conception of what was missing. You know, I didn't not enjoy touring, but I was I was and I guess I was young and I didn't really mind that there was no I didn't notice that there was no mm-hmm. women around. But as I got older and you build up your lifetime collection of emotions and experiences, having a, a female friend and musician on tour was invaluable. And I'm incredibly dull as a as a <laughs> as a human being with incredibly dull interests. And you know, it was as dull as knitting and watching Northanger Abbey before soundcheck. That's what we would get up to, and that was life changing. What's the best thing you ever knit on tour? I'm not a gifted knitter, but there was a lot of. Um, <laughs> There was a lot of baby hats. Okay. Nice. Were there 
Uh, babies in mind? Babies. Was there a babies in mind for these hats, or uh, they were just, <laughs> just just pure abstract just, yeah. baby hats? Yeah, yeah, just for the just for the fun. I don't. I mean, I, I think that there's a certain at a certain point, a lot of bands that have longevity end up either looking at now devices or whatever it is. They're, they're, to be able to to prolong and and do it for a while, you have to. There has to be a certain amount of boringness to it. Yeah, you have to have your routine down. And when I tour by myself, I do. I have a I have a great, very strict routine, which is the same when I'm off tour, which is getting up early, working for me, which is reading or writing for two hours, and then getting on with the rest of the day. And on tour, usually going to a gallery or doing something that means that you felt like you've done something with your day. How much touring have you done where it's just you? I did a lot in the years that I was living in America. I did I did America four or five times by myself and in a car. Literally just you just in a car? Me. Oh my goodness. No tour manager, no guitar tech, just me. How would you find those moments in between songs when you do a tour like that, where maybe sometimes people are drunk or people are not necessarily on the same level? Because something I always think about when I see an acoustic performer is what they're doing in those moments in between the songs. Like, how, how are those for you? I don't really think about it. My crowds tend to be very quiet. You've never had a single incident? Someone annoying, someone drunk. I've had, yeah, like of that. course. I've had people. I've tried to collect a um, a backlog of one-liners to deliver, but I've never quite had the confidence to do it. Do you want to try? Yeah, you want to? You want to test um, one out here? You have to. Um, um, I remember my first drink too. <laughs> I just don't good. think I've got the attitude to pull it off, really. <laughs> I think. Well, I think if you're if you're feeling the flow, yeah, that the the legendary Laura Marling on stage confidence, no nervousness, <laughs> exactly. just let it flow. That's yeah. great. I'm sure. I'm sure. You delivered it well here, but I can only imagine with the heightened sense of of performing that you were already being, it would be it would and play a really well. Face full of English scorn, which is enough to shut quite a lot of people out. <laughs> particularly, I think that particularly work well in America because a stern British accent, I think, plays differently and very well there. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, next time. Is there a place where you found there's particularly respectful crowds for that show for when it's just you? I mean, I love touring America for that reason. Because I think the size of shows that I would do on a solo tour, like 500 to 1,000 capacity, very nice rooms, they're all people, you know, because I'm not very well known in America, they're all people who've had to try to get there anyway. So they're, and, and like I'm sort of filled with the sense of exoticness of America, obviously, which is slightly less than that. Does that still that hold? Does that still? Outside of the coasts. Yeah, I do. I think it, I think it is, you know, it's still exotic to me. What region or city feels the most exotic to you? There's so many magical ones. Like I had a lot of fun exploring New Mexico and that sort of inner on one tour I was on, I was reading a book called Mutants and Mystics, which is about a history of occultism on the west coast of America and how comic book culture developed from like early occultists and things like that and it all happened around like Yelm, Washington and down through Big Sur, like the guy who wrote Communion, that apparently happened in Big Sur, or you know, like all of that yeah. stuff, you know. And I, I just loved that side of America, that where it all goes weird and wrong. And you found that New Mexico was a, a part where that was the case? Yeah, yeah, big time. One thing I, I was curious about, I was a little surprised that you said you, you're rarely nervous before going on stage, even dating back, is that so much of your music and sort of of or at least it seems where it comes from is introspective and mm. is very much mining how you feel. Mm. 
how has that translation been? Has, has it always been the same to you from, from that introspective writing and origin to the very public facing performing thing? Yeah, that's, I think as I get older, I realize that that's what people, you know, when I've said before that I don't get nervous, but, but you're confessional, you know, I say in, in inverted commas, but in my life, I'm very, I like to talk in very raw emotional terms mm -hmm. and that's not alien to me and that's how that's how I prefer to that's where the, the good stuff is to me so I think I've always been like that so it's never seemed confessional to me it's just you know getting into the so do you do you find is, is it like a an amplified version of yourself a, or, or is it persona, does it feel like yeah. like it translates very naturally no it's definitely a persona and it's a persona that that thankfully I was created young so I didn't have to curate it too much and so yeah, it's definitely an amplified version of, of reality or something. I do want to keep going back. I, I guess I have so many questions about the solo touring, about driving yourself, because I feel like a lot of um, friends in British bands and people we would meet, the idea of being in a car for eight hours, the like American landscape, the eight hours it takes to get from city to city, that doesn't really exist over here. And so, I mean, if you grew up around here, when did you get your driver's license? I got mine at 19. Okay. Yes. And did you get it so that way you could drive yourself around America, basically? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Never had a need for a driving license until then. How was learning to drive over here? That was fine. I had to learn manual. And then when yeah. I when I got to LA, I took two lessons and a test with no, yeah. you know, I just drove right four times and got back to the place and passed. And I was like, oh. What part of London did you learn to drive in? I learned to drive in Shepherd's Bush. Okay. Yeah. Nice. How long would you drive a day when you'd be alone? It depended. I mean, there were some awful moments. See, this is what I yeah. yeah what, what are those this, awful moments? Because we've had plenty of them. We like remember those early days in the van. And well, the one that says, I mean, firstly, there's a lot to see in America, so it's always fun to drive in, in my if you can stay off the freeways. There was one day when I had to get from Chicago to Toronto, and I was going to fly. I was not going to do the drive, and then I put the guitars on the plane. And then I sat in the airport for five hours and they just didn't announce that the flight had been cancelled. So by, by this time it was eight o'clock at night and there were no flights until the next afternoon. So I was going to not make the show. So I went and, and like everyone in England was asleep so no one could help me, um, <laughs> which I usually do get a little help. And so I went to the car rental place and I rented a car and I drove to Toronto that night. Like overnight? Overnight. Over but I was also a vegan and there was nothing to eat. It was just like, <laughs> not yeah, a single thing. Not a, I couldn't find any, anything, yeah, yeah. especially around the border. I pulled over the car and slept in the car, I think, for a couple of hours in some nice town, like a college town in, in um, Hamilton. No. Uh, what's the lake in Michigan? Somewhere in Michigan. Oh, okay. Or maybe Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is Ann a Arbor. That's where I stopped. Yeah. And then I carried on the next morning and I made it to the show. But that was 14 hour drive. And really, would it have been that bad if I just canceled the show? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Did the show feel better though because you made it because of the trials and tribulations? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I liked the sort of element of self torture that it, driving yourself actually it was. Did it was you express that to the audience at that show? Oh, everything you'd gone story. through? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the element of like purpose, the extra element of purpose that driving yourself gives around is it's like it was like a nice I like to like be in a drive of some kind I like to work even on those big driving days do you still you do you still try to make a point of the two hour yeah morning? I still get up and 
get something done in the morning and then get going. So the, usually I, would, I wouldn't travel more than four hours a day. And it was carefully rooted that way. But that, so that's why that was a fly, fly job, that one. Would you consider that the worst travel? Or was there, was there something else that was sort of, has been a gnarlier travel experience to get to a show? I mean, there's been flights that have been horrific, you know, like horrible. I, I don't fly in small planes. I just can't bear. And one time I did, and it was it was flying into Montreal in the dead of winter, and I lost my shit. Um, and How so cold was it? It was like ice. So as far as I could see as we yeah. were landing, it was ice and snow on the ground, and in the snowstorm. And then there was like driving through Kansas and then there's tornado alarms going off. That was, you know, it's all... Yeah, all that shit. Yeah, I I guess I didn't know that that you drove yourself and just would be solo. What is your entertainment choices on even even a four-hour drive when it's just you? I do do a lot of podcasts and a lot of audiobooks and not that much music. We, I think we find the same thing. I'm not sure why that... I think maybe because... The point of the day is often is musical, and, yeah, yeah. and when you're you, you're saving that sort of mental energy and mental space for the performance aspect. But yeah, we find that too. I think is a lot of like spoken word narrative stuff. Yeah, tends to be a more satisfying place to have your head when you're 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 driving or commuting. There was probably not the same vibrant uh, podcast, podcast culture scene. when you started, though, right? Or there was here. Oh, really? I mean, maybe not, but there was a great BBC Six show that's not on anymore. And it was these two British comedians called Adam Buxton and Joe Cornish. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we've met met them before. That was right around the time that I started solo touring and I listened. You know, they kept me company for months at a time. I always find it weird when I listen to a ton of podcasts and then I see the host speak and I actually hear their voice coming out of their face because it becomes this kind of, when you're listening to you their voice, it's, like totally, it's totally disembodied. But I just would imagine if, you've, if they've kept you company through all these things, then actually seeing their faces talk might be disorienting. Maybe this is just a thing that I yeah, have. Yeah, it might be a bit too weird for me. The other, I listen to David Sedaris constantly as well. I can't imagine seeing him speak would be really weird now. This must be like... A hundred hours of David Sedaris books wow. I've got on my yeah. collection. We've talked a lot about the UK and the States. Yeah. How have you found touring in non-English speaking territories and countries? I mean, South America's great. Done a bit there. You guys do a lot down there, don't you? We've, uh, not as much as I feel like we would I'd have like wanted to. to. Yeah, yeah, it's such an amazing, vibrant place. I mean, every show we've had down there, most of which have been like in a festival setting, but a few scattered club ones, yeah, I mean, have been awesome. But I've, I've always, yeah, felt like it's been interesting. Early on in Europe in particular, we we did well and, and sort of grew, but there does seem to be, in music where the lyrics are very important and, you know, carry a lot, Yeah, that sometimes it's harder to translate, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah. just wondering how, if you have found that too. De- definitely. I don't do a lot of touring in Europe. I'd love to because... I like the traveling yeah. side of it. And like, I've never been to Japan. Mm. Oh, never? No. That's surprising. Yeah, it's a great sadness of mine. I feel like particularly a young British person. <laughs> I feel like they, like the, the, new, the new stuff, stuff that's written about, that's big, it gets big in the press here. I feel like there's a big draw to that. I'm, I'm surprised even early on you never went. I, yeah. I got offered Fuji Festival a couple of years ago, but I couldn't make it work to go there. But yeah, that's on my, that's on my bucket list for sure. I did an amazing tour, actually, of Europe. The best European tour I did was with Adam Green. Okay. Because, you know, he's a superstar in Germany. He, like, gets yes. chased I, down the street. So you you 
toured with him at the height of German Adam Green mania. Yeah. It was so, that that whole tour was so fun. It was like the, the it was like just before we started touring on buses. So it was we still didn't mind being in vans, like getting in our grotty van and drinking a bottle of whiskey on the way to the next place or whatever. And that was, you know, there was youth on our side. And he and his band were just so fun and lovely. And I think he went and got married on the tour. He he like just went off one day and married his girlfriend. It was just fun. It was just, you know, bizarre, surreal fun. So when we talked to Winston, in a sort of surprising turn of events, we were talking about the sort of like early touring and bands and stuff. And then we asked what his first tour of America was. And he's like, oh, we were on a bus. But then it turns out it was it was your bus. He described that like Winston was not in your band, but he he was crashing in the back lounge or something. So I think at that point, Ted and Marcus were my rhythm section. Winston was in my band, I think. Ben wasn't. Oh, okay. okay. And they, Winston and Ben did not have bunks. Okay, that's so. So they were literally on the floor of the back of the bus. And it was me and Johnny Flynn headlining. So it was, we were all sharing bands. And Mumford and Sons were on first. That's what interested me about um, you having found a rhythm section that you've stuck with and that you've really developed like a long-term relationship with, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, it's because it felt like in the early days, maybe there was a lot more with Mystery Jets or Knowing the Whale. There was a lot more maybe shifting around and finding people that that led you to find the people that you, you really... Yeah. Again, that's, you know, without sort of getting nostalgic, that was the innocence of youth. You know, there was no career in it for anybody. So the the intermingling of playing in everyone's bands had no consequence. And as I as everyone sort of slowly realized, it dawned on everybody that this is probably what we're going to have to do now for the rest <laughs> of our lives, hopefully. There's multiple sides to that realization, right? Yeah. It's, and some of which is sort of committing to it and, and, and learning what you want to learn and picking up what you want to pick up. But then also there is a, a business side of it too, of if this is what I do, what we do, how can we make this work and how can we support ourselves by doing this? Yeah. You know, that's why it was 16 of us on a tour bus. You know, <laughs> I've always found that I, I feel like the British tour bus scene always felt more cramped to me. I don't like British tour buses. <laughs> like the double-decker style. Then they're always blue lights, blue LED yeah. lights, like you're in a club. Some of our more cramped and claustrophobic moments have been yeah. in summers in Europe in a British bus. If any of the people who designed the British tour buses are listening, please <laughs> step your game up. Or, or you know, just have, have some artists consult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk, to, talk to the people who hang out. Laura, do you ever start talking to yourself at the end of a like three week solo tour? I find like sometimes when I'm just alone for an extended period of time, I do that a little bit. Yeah, I but I I like getting to that point because you find as you get older. I used to write not a very uh, emotional one, but I used to write a journal, and I just can't have that. I can't write I anymore. Hmm. Do you know? I think that's part of aging. But I, when I'm on tour solo i get that dialogue back with myself a bit yeah which i like i like being in that headspace for a bit not for too long and then checking in every yeah three weeks to get grounded why can't you write i is it because you it feel feels, like you've written i enough that yes maybe i've used up all my eyes it just feels like such a pointless exercise to consider entirely your own perspective and not a more universal one now but when you're a young semi-narcissistic person which we all are it's part of our rite of passage then everything's about you mm-hmm. but now just to know <laughs> but so you do feel when you're on your own like kind of deeper into those three weeks that you 
you get a little bit back to that yeah. semi-narcissistic. Semi-narcissistic state, yeah, because it's like a solitary confinement yeah. thing or something. It's like going off to the cabin in the woods to write for three months. It would be fairly fascinating, I think, if you just recorded yourself while you were like talking to yourself and then revisited it at a time when you were not in that state. I don't know. I don't know if there's like free association happening or anything. I'm just curious. Do you find your writing is different when, say, maybe when you're in a solo tour headspace versus when you're home in that that couple hour window in the morning? Yeah, def- I mean, t- definitely the, the, the general cog of touring, when that's going, I write so much more. But um, You write more on tour, you Much think? more mm-hmm. on tour. Interesting. Yeah. And that's why, funny enough, I think there's no coincidence that this has been the longest I've taken to write because I haven't been on tour that much, which has been nice. It's given me a different experience, but... Huh. So that that also explains your, like, prodigious work ethic, Output, right? Yes. Like, yeah. I, you're the only person I know who does, let's say that they write better on tour. You're the only person I think I've ever talked to about this that says that. I find that fascinating. Or the way you can go back to back as if one begets the other. Yeah, I think it is all. It's it's all one big energetic cycle. But I don't know. I've never done it any other way. This has been my first well, experience. Your first record, right? Which I wrote mostly oh. on tour. You know, I had four songs or whatever that I had so written when I was four. a teenager. So the first four kicked off the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This never ending. That was cycle. the beginning of nice. whatever planetary cycle <laughs> <laughs> continued. That's amazing. Yeah, I did have one question. That there really isn't like a larger emotional or conceptual standpoint behind this. But do you remember the first time we met? Oh, that's a good question. It was 2008 in the Southern Hemisphere. In Australia? Yeah. <laughs> I just I remember because it, it was this, again, Ezra and myself were split off and, and Chris and Ross were doing something else. I forget what you guys were doing. But we were at Splendor in the Grass and we did a very quick photo shoot of... It's just, it's just come flooding back to of me. Of myself, Ezra, oh my and you, and they made us hold hands. Oh my God, I remember, Do you remember so that? well. Oh God, I've so efficiently blocked that out of my memory. It was very awkward. Not not so from awkward. any inter- but Oh, what horrible we were, I think we were all do. kind of in Australia, like a little bit wide-eyed and kind of like, oh, cool, we're, we're in Australia. Yeah. And when the, uh, hold hands. I can't do an Australian accent. Like, hold hands. And we were just kind of, I remember it being like a little bit, okay. Um, at least they didn't make us jump, which which is always they sort of. They did make the, us jump. Did they make us jump yeah, too? That, oh, I, yeah, yeah. That, no, I'd block that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. They made us jump. That that night, actually, funny enough, that was when Marcus was playing. He just played a snare drum on stage, and sang backing vocals. And we went to the after party of the festival because we were both so. It was such you know that first time in Australia, yeah. and Marcus he poured what he thought was an empty drink thing over my head and it had beer in it. And I turned around and I fake slapped him. You know, that thing where you make the sound, but you don't actually hit the face. Yes, yes. And and he pretended like I had slapped him. And then the lead singer of Sigur Ross, who just headlined the festival, came up and was like, came up to Marcus as if I had just slapped him, thinking that I had hit him. And I was asking him if, if everything was okay and like, did he need any help? And like I could see Marcus laughing, like keeled over. And I don't think we ever even got to explain to him that I hadn't slapped Marcus in the like face. Like he was trying to protect Marcus from you, yeah, from me. this monster band leader. Yeah. Just slapping him around. Oh, wow. Never got to Legendary Australian Knights. Yes. <laughs> we'll tell Yanzi next time you see him. But, <laughs> but it was okay. You didn't actually. But you, you, your heart was in the right place. Is there any um any beef you've had from touring that you, you want to just get off your chest? What kind of thing? Why was anybody come up with anybody ever wronged you on tour? They've meant to put me. on blast. <laughs> Settle scores. Settle scores. I yeah. don't know. No, like what? I don't know. That 
one sound engineer in Tucson who really gave you a hard time? Oh, there's been a couple of those. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us, yeah, <laughs> a we want this what, shit. Like yeah. Jobsworth in-house sound engineers. So we learned that word Jobsworth when we first came over here from a British tour manager. But for American listeners, it's someone who is such a stickler for the rules. Takes their job. Takes their job way too seriously. seriously. Often, we heard it mainly in the context of like a security guard or at a festival, someone who triple checked your wristband say yes the job's so worth. what's the worst jobs worth you've encountered i've had a couple of people so i when i sing i have the microphone very high up because i like to look up and i have it a little bit far away because i like to have control over my relationship to the mic this infuriates so many in-house sound engineers and it's like if you're a pale person which i am people love to tell you that you need to wear sunscreen and I find it <laughs> so infuriating because I've lived with my skin for you, however You're long. aware of... Yeah, it's not like... And it's like a childish regression thing or something being told to cover up or, you know. And so I am already slightly on the back foot as soon as somebody comes to take my microphone stand down. And I had this one guy who was saying, well, you have to take it down because it's going to make the monitors feedback and I never use in-ears. And I was like, well, we'll see. Should we see how it goes? And he was like, no, you have to take it down. And I was like, well, we'll just see. We'll just see how it goes. Were you, were you physically re... I was re... It was so all of you were sort of... Okay, up and back down. and forth. And um, he got over to his monitor station, turned the monitor up and deliberately <gasps> drove the monitor so that I jumped back and my ears were popped and it was... And he didn't do the show. Oh, you had him removed? I brought this smack down. Yeah. How old were you? Is this like... This was in America touring by myself. I can't remember what venue... But I was on my own, and I good for you. Yeah, I was. I, I thought it was the right thing to do. Of saying I'm not going to. That was a, a step too far. And I think he had, you know, he was on his way he out. He was of that a universal venue. jobs worth, and I think the guy mm. who was running the venue was more than happy to send him home for the day. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Damn well, whoever that sound person is. Yeah, yeah. You're on blast. <laughs> do you have a single favorite show you ever played? No, I'm not that good. I mean, the, the, the first time we went to Argentina, that was, Argentina just blew me away. Presumably in Buenos Aires? Buenos Aires, yeah. I just thought it was so magical. I loved the, I loved the city. I went a week early and I just walked around Buenos Aires for a week and the weird smell of like dog poo and steak and <laughs> so great. And <laughs> tropical plants covering Parisian buildings. And we played like club shows, but it was brilliant. What about the converse of that? Do you have a worst show? I supported, yes, I do, and it's right at the top of my memory. Um, I supported a band in, I think it was the Maccabees, which is a bit of an odd combination anyway, but they were friends of mine. When I was about 18, I think, and it was in Portsmouth, and it was like a Friday night, a bit rowdy, and the whole crowd started shouting, get your tits out. Oh. And I was not media trained at that point. I didn't know how to deal with that kind of stuff. How did you react? Did you walk off? I think I walked off, yeah. That was it. And then they got a big telling off from the Maccabee guys. But, you know, that was, I never play shows like that. I never played to crowds like that. Thankfully, I haven't ever again. Right, and presumably, Laura, Laura Marling's audience is. is They're not so interested yeah. in that side of me. <laughs> we, what was, was that, where was that happened to us with that dude on like the Jumbotron? Oh, was God. that Leeds? It was in Big Day Out. I can't remember which date. And it was described to us as a rogue. Jumbotron operator. operator. Basically, we played and one woman did what that crowd was harassing you to do. Right. And people started cheering. And then 
the guy who was running the Jumbotron wrote, get them out, ladies. And we're on stage and we have no idea. We're four fucking nerds just playing on stage. No idea that this kind of like quasi Woodstock 99 energy was being brought on the Jumbotron. I was not happy about that. Yeah. Not a happy did story they, for or us. Did you get a crowd of nips? There were some, yeah, but uh, it, but it's not right. <laughs> if they were harassed on the Jumbotron, it's, it's fucked right. up. Yeah. It's awful. Well, how about this? We started with this this one show this summer. I know you're you've written and then you know an album may or may not be in the works, but do you hope to get back on tour soon? The, after this long break, what do you miss? What are you looking forward about this show and then you know touring touring after that? I yeah well it's nice to have the the structure of touring I miss that and also to hang out with my band who I shamefully don't see we don't see each other that much when we're not touring and I like the getting up in a different city every day and also mm-hmm. being back in that flow I've never disliked touring particularly and I think it's been good for me to have this time off and I'm sure you guys just had a bit a chunk off haven't you yeah I mean we're coming back from like well as we have mentioned we've done some solo touring and stuff but from the band it's been five five years it was a little bit last summer but now we're really starting again for the first time in a while oh that's great when I think of sort of like the most aimless times of my life, it would have been right after we finished touring our second record, so early 2011, because the first three and a half years of our band was a blur, and then there were suddenly no plans, and I was very, very aimless. Did you find when you came off this last tour, there was an adjustment period, or did you find like a certain aimlessness? Or in general, do you find a certain aimlessness when you get off tour, or are you basically in that rigid schedule right when you start? I get back into my schedule, but I mean, that in itself is fairly aimless. Okay. Um Ordered aimlessness. Ordered the rigid schedule is has room for aimlessness. Within yeah, it. I mean it is, but I mean, what am I really doing? Keeping myself from the edge of existentialism, you know, like just distracting myself from the realities of life in some way, uh, which we all are, filling our lives with whatever we do. But I, yeah, I find ways to keep structure. I also have a four-month-old nephew on the next street who I think I'm I've been some use to, which helps. Thank you so much for welcoming us into your beautiful home and talking to us today. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was our conversation with Laura Marling. CT, I got to say, I loved it. What do you think? I had a great time. I I was really interesting to hear her talk at length about some of these things, particularly like driving alone. I thought the fact that she learned to drive specifically to tour the U.S. alone was pretty interesting. And yeah, she's just uh, incredibly intelligent and really appreciated her taking the time to talk to us. She's put out an insane amount of albums and uh, definitely check them all out. And I can't wait to hear whatever she comes up with next. Um, We're recording this today, by the way, on uh, October 8th. We're at Red Rocks all the way at the top of it. The doors are about to open in 14 minutes, and we're right where all the fans are going to be. So we're going to try and make this a real tight one. This is like the first time we've done an outro where there's a little the bit t- of pressure. There's a ticking clock. There's a, there's ticking a little clock. bit of a ticking clock. Also, I don't know if, did you mention that Soccer Mommy is soundtracking? Oh, Soccer Mommy is soundtracking. They sound great. It's been great touring with them. They're a really, really great band. I'd, Absolutely. This is a sort of a side plug. But oh, yeah. uh, if Soccer Mommy's in your town, you should go see them. Absolutely. Um, so as you may know, we love taking questions for the mailbag segment of The Road Taken. If you have any questions for CT and I about touring or really anything else, send us an email to theroadtaken at theringer.com. 
I still haven't figured out how to log into it yet. Yeah, we're, we're working on it. But uh, I love this email from Andrew, so I'm going to read it. Uh, he said, CT and Bayo really enjoyed the first podcast. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you about the impact of touring on your health, especially as, let's put it delicately, you're not as young as when you started out. That's probably reduced the chances of this being answered. Specifically, have you ever got sick while touring? If so, what's it like for you to go on stage when feeling shite? Finally, do you have anything that you take, like any secret elixir that helps counteract the tiredness, sleeplessness that you must experience on the road? Thank you, Andrew. P.S. More for CT. WTF is happening with Tottenham this season. Oh, boy. Well, from the shite, I'm going to guess this is from somewhere in the Commonwealth. Oh, yeah. So thanks for your email, Andrew. All right, well, let's get to the health stuff first. I mean, well, first of all, that's just how time works. It's true. Of course, we're older than when we started. I mean, I actually, I was more inclined to pick this one because... You were lightly roasting us for being... Lightly roasting us for being too old as dudes on tour. So thanks for this, Andrew. I really do love it. But yeah, you know, this, it is only natural to get older. Truly, the, the most the natural, alternative? The most what natural is the, thing. What is the alternative? Um, health on tour. I mean, I think when we started out, speaking for myself, didn't really think about it. I think there was sort yeah. of nothing really to think about as a, as, as you pointed out, a 24-year-old just, you know, playing partying, not sleeping in a van, like whatever it was, mm-hmm. it sort of didn't really matter. Uh, as we've matured, that's the sort of thing in longevity and the physicality that, that shows, particularly the shows we're playing that are much longer now, yeah. like two, over two hours. It takes a lot. I know Chris Bay is a real runner. Running's your thing. I run, uh, I'll do like a light run before we play, but I mean, I definitely feel older than I did 11 years ago, which is logical. And, um, I'll, I'll get a massage maybe every two weeks and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm still pretty lucky. I've only gotten sick once, and that was very recently. It's pretty common, though, that I get sick when I get home from tour, just because your adrenaline's up for so long. So that's that's kind of the main thing for me. I don't know. Have you ever been on stage? And, oh, well, I remember in London... When I got hit by a car? No, I wasn't even thinking of that one. <laughs> okay. When you had food poisoning. Oh, yeah, that was... I was scared for you. Well, to get food poisoning, I ate a burger <laughs> at... 11.27 p.m. in London. Okay. Um, There's some great burgers in London, but keep going. That one in particular did not treat me well. And mm-hmm. so with our guest last week's band, Winston and Mumford & Sons, yeah. we were playing a really big show with them in London. And I really was just kind of in bed, fairly feverish. Kind of reminded me of that time I had mono, actually, mm. in college. In we'll college. do another episode dedicated <laughs> to the time you had mono. Okay, yeah. The, maybe the season two. The clock is ticking right now. Um, yeah. Essentially, just had a puke bucket next to me. You kind of get through the show. You, the adrenaline pumps up. Um, the headcount.org guys are really getting excited. I don't know if you can hear them in the background. Yeah, yeah. All the potential voters coming in. Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, health more at this point is learning how to take it easy, which isn't really even about partying or not partying, but is more about during the days of staying in the hotel, of sleeping longer, of, of yeah. making sure you're balancing out the time on stage with the time resting up for stage. Yeah, definitely. Listen to your body. That would be my advice to any middle-aged person performing on tour. Or really just in general. <laughs> We're not middle-aged. We're approaching middle-age. I self-identified you do? these days as a middle-aged man. I do. Let us know what you think. The road taken at theringer.com. If we're middle-aged or not. I, I'm, no. Come on. Okay. I won't say your Early middle-aged. Okay. I'm 34. Early middle-aged. Um, and to answer the very briefly, no idea what's going on with Tottenham. They don't look great. The last couple weeks have been pretty bad, but I trust my guy, Patch. And also, one thing I want to say from the intro... Uh, Please send us a message. Let us know if you think the term toilet touring is disrespectful or if you think CT should be more respectful of toilets and the function they serve. Uh, the road taken okay. at theringer.com. CT, what's your socials? Uh, my socials are 
Twitter, the real CT1, and Instagram, Dams of the West. And I am OYAB, OIAB on both platforms. I think we're going to stop plugging the socials soon. This is three <laughs> episodes in a row. If, you know, if people are listening and not following us, you know, we're just not, you know, whatever. Um, oh, CT, you got a, you got a quote about the road for uh, today? Oh, and also like and subscribe, classic. CT, would you leave us with a great quote about the road? Sure. It doesn't really say the road in it, but there's two I have in my head. Mm-hmm. The bus came by and I got on. That's when it all began. That's beautiful. And uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. That's that's kind of top oh, yeah. level, but you know it. Was that your uh, senior yearbook quote? Uh, the bus one was. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I guessed that. I did not know that, <laughs> listener. Anyways, all right. See you next week. We have Havoc from Mob Deep, and it is one of my favorite conversations. And I love all these conversations from this season. Um, it's okay. No one's taking offense. You can say you like dislike them. I love these 10 <laughs> conversations like I would equally love my 10 children. All right. See you next week.